The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the edition podcast from The Spectator. Each week we look at three pieces from the magazine with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast, The Spectator's executive editor. And I'm William Moore, The Spectator's features editor. On this week's episode, we'll be asking, why aren't we giving Ukraine what it needs? We'll be discussing the state of crisis in His Majesty's prisons. And we'll be debating where the Rolling Stones sit in the pantheon of rock and roll. First up, Boris Johnson writes The Spectator's cover piece this week in which he urges the West to supply more military assistance to Ukraine in order to bring about a swift end to the war. Sir Richard Barons, the former commander of the Joint Forces Command, joins me now with The Spectator's Svetlana Mornitz to discuss his piece. Richard, Boris Johnson accuses the West of dragging its feet and not supplying enough weaponry to Ukraine quickly enough. Do you agree? No, I I agree, but I think it's more complicated than that because this this war is in transition from the support that could be provided from the things the West had on the shelf in their industry and their government armories to the point we've reached now where the only way of supplying Ukraine with enough weapons, ammunition and other material is through the mobilization of defense industry. And the mobilization of defense industry has not proceeded fast enough in order to maintain either the flow or the quantity of stuff that's required. And that is imposing a significant drag on Ukraine's ability to fight the war now. Well, one of the things as well that, that comes out in the piece uh, towards the end is that he says that, uh, that, that that a US president, let alone who one who wanted to make America great again, needs to to ensure that a, the Putin victory does not happen. I mean, isn't the the wider point of the piece perhaps is that uh, it's America beyond anything else that um, any other country can do that will eventually determine whether Ukraine's able to get the weapons it needs or, or not? So America so far has been more than 50% of the provider of material to the uh, Ukrainian military, and that's because they have a very large uh, set of armed forces and can give more stuff away, and they have a very large industry. Uh, what America is saying, however, is that this is more complicated in, in that they have to think about their concerns around China and Asia, and they believe that Europe should and could do more because this war is in Europe. And the question for Europeans is if this war is going to cost, say, 100 billion euros a year to support, it is not a question of affordability. It's a question of choice and will. And this war in Ukraine can be supported by a much bigger effort from Europe without it denting our way of life, our, our economic prospects, our, our, our prosperity, but only if the money is spent to drive up industry. And that is happening very slowly. And what do you think of um, Boris's suggestion that it's nonsense to 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 hold back certain weapons? Uh, he gives the example of ATACMs in case they need to be sent to protect Taiwan in in the case of a uh, of an invasion from mainland China. And he says that the the best way to deter an attack from Taiwan is to make sure the Ukrainians win and as fast as possible. So in regards to 
um, the sort of tilt to the Pacific that you mentioned, that strategy. Uh, do you think, what do you think of Boris's argument there, that a defense of Ukraine is ultimately also a defense of, of Taiwan? So I think everybody is clear that how the West now responds to the way the war has turned out in Ukraine will condition how China views its ambitions and its willingness to take risks in, in, in its own intentions to assert itself in uh, Asia Pacific. And if the West is supine now around Ukraine and essentially walks away from its commitments, China will be emboldened by this. And that, I don't think, is in our national or our allies' interests. However, uh, the other aspect of this that's been clear since since even before the war started, or this phase of the war started, is that NATO does not want this war to expand to a war between Russia and NATO. And the limitations that have been placed on weapons over time have, have been about not using them on Russian territory, even though we know that Ukraine, in fighting its war, must be able to strike Russia. And right now it's falling back on its own industry and ingenuity. But but these long-range missiles, the ATACMS missiles, are essential to give Ukraine the capability, like Storm Shadow cruise missiles, that can hit the Russian occupation anywhere in occupied Ukraine. And provided that stipulation is abided by Ukraine, and so far it, it has been, then providing these missiles is not about the provision of stocks to counter interests, uh, U.S. interests in dealing with China in Asia Pacific, it's it's about making sure the war doesn't escalate in the way I described. Mm. And Svetlana, you've recently been spending a lot of time with troops and uh, other forces in Ukraine, and you've been writing very good articles for The Spectator about that. I wonder, from your experience, whether you agree with the analysis in the piece that the needs of the battlefield are changing. And I wonder if you could explain for our listeners how they are changing. Um, yes, of course. Uh, the counteroffensive has been uh, moving slowly, but Ukrainian army is advancing. But the problem is that the ones who can advance right now are only the infantry because of their mines and the drones. Now it became more a uh, war of drones be- between both armies, and uh, Ukrainians doesn't have enough systems to shut down those Russian drones. And because of the mines, the heavy armor armor can't advance. And because the air coverage, also Ukraine has a big losses. And when I talk to the soldier, mostly they say that they have two major, three major problems right now. These are Russian drones, the mines, and that there is no air coverage. And Ukrainian government is trying to talk that as... For example, that we need long-range missiles, and uh, especially we talk about ATMs, uh, U.S. Uh, long-range missiles. But they say they don't want to supply them to us because they af- they are afraid that Ukraine will start striking uh, Russia or Russian warehouses on Russian territory. But so far, Ukraine has been using, for example, uh, storm shadow missiles provided by Britain. And Kiev Cap is promised that it's going to target only occupied territories. So I think it, it is just an excuse and uh, soldiers feel outraged why uh, Ukraine doesn't receive all of what it needs to finish the war fast. Because we have enough weapons just to hold the defense line and to advance a little. But we don't have enough weapons to actually liberate the territories that we need. So right now the counteroffensive is concentrated 
is focused not like liberating big cities, maybe because Ukraine doesn't have enough sources for, for that, resources for that, but to cut the Russian supply lines, even if Ukraine doesn't need to come up to Tokmak, for example, or Militopol, it just needs to cut off uh, Russia, uh, the railway uh, lines and uh, other supply lines. And then in this way, it would be easier for us to them if Russians will be struggling to reinforce their forces. Hmm. And and Richard, with your military experience, I wonder what, what you make of the, the types of weapons that, that Ukraine are now uh, now asking for and whether you believe that they could achieve strategic gains if they were to receive these weapons and would it would it do you, do you think it would change the nature of the counteroffensive so i think the the way the war has turned out in 2023 particularly in the way the ukrainian counteroffensive has has moved forward but slowly it has demonstrated how this war can be won and it is established that at the current level of support ukraine will not have the military power to remove the Russian occupiers from all of its territory. And the choice the West is facing is is either uh, give up with all the baleful consequences for Ukraine and for the West that would come with that, and I don't believe that's a credible option, or is it to accept we are where we are and to bind in and provide Ukraine with the weapons over time in quantity to be able to win on the battlefield and remove the Russian occupiers. And that requires a number of things to happen concurrently. First of all, enough um, artillery ammunition and other weapons to continue the fight on the front line to maintain the pressure on what is now a thousand kilometers of of, uh, of of front line. Secondly, enough weapons to strike anywhere into the Russian occupation. And this is the sort of thing that storm shadow missiles and attackums missiles will do so that the Russian artillery arm logistics command and control is, is consistently reduced over the course of at least this winter. Thirdly, uh, the, the, the Black Sea Fleet must continue to be removed as something that can threaten the economic life of Ukraine and the flow of grain to 400 million people from Odessa. Uh, that requires missiles, but also the developing Ukrainian uh, drone capability. And we need to accept that winning this war is going to take as long as it takes. And that now means this war will definitely go into 2024 and possibly 2025. And the only way the West can support this is by now ramping up its defense industry at its own expense. And because that hasn't happened, that is going to impose about a, an additional year at least on how long this war takes to be brought to a successful conclusion. So the choice is quite stark. It's either stop now because we don't want to pay the bill and we've run out of stuff to give away from our largely obsolescent stocks, or bind in behind Ukraine in our own interests and ramp up defense industry and commit to that for the two to three years it's going to take. It, it is, frankly, as stark as that. Hmm. And Svetlana, there's a, there's another point of Boris's piece which he starts with, which is he talks about uh, witnessing the wounded soldiers that he that he that he meets uh, in Ukraine. You wrote a, a piece, The Spectator, about some of the failures of the the um, first aid kits, the medical kits that are being given to the soldiers, and and um, the suggestion that more Ukrainian soldiers are dying from their wounds. Than, than need to. So I wondered if, if you agree with Boris's feeling about a sense that he writes of helpless rage when he sees, when he sees the wounded soldiers. I mean, do you, do you share the similar frustrations that they're not, they're not getting the high level of medical attention that, that you would hope for? Yes, of course I do. But first we have to remember that Russia is the main responsible here for all the casualties in Ukraine. 
but uh, of course, if soldiers had enough evacuation transport and quality medical supplies, then more people would have chances to survive, even if they received heavy injuries, because sometimes evacuations uh, can last up to 10 hours. But it is problem only not just because of the lack of evacuation transport. It is the problem that they sometimes the medics they have to drag soldiers like from three to five kilometers with their hands because of the heavy shinings, and Russians target the um, medical groups, and because they save lives. And if they had again the ever air coverage and protection from Russian drones, then more people could be saved. And about the problem with the supplies that, uh, with medical supplies and quality first aid kits, it's getting uh, solved more or less because finally as the people started talking about it and the government woke up and noticed this issue. So the uh, NGOs and volunteers, they are all trying to manage it, of course, it will take some time, but I hope the situation will improve. And Boris Johnson, in his piece, he was writing that the soldiers say that they don't like compassion because they are just doing their job. Uh, but I wouldn't agree with that because, of course, when you visit an injured soldier in the in the hospital, the last thing that you have to do is to say how sorry you are and to show them this pity, they do need pity, it won't help them to recover and won't motivate them to live further. Uh, the best what you can do is to offer help and if if they need it, they will say what they need and you can help. Or maybe they, you need just to talk to them. And they also don't like when people call them heroes because for them, it's like they are forced to fight because they have to protect their families and their land, but they would prefer to have a peaceful life rather than to be heroes and sacrifice their lives. And Richard, just finally, you, you mentioned earlier that because the counteroffensive has been going slower than hoped, uh, the war will certainly drag on into 2024, and you said possibly even 2025. Are you concerned then about wavering support in America, given that there is a presidential election next year and Donald Trump, who seems likely to be the Republican nominee and then possibly as well the president, has said that he will end the war in 24 hours by forcing a negotiation if he um, is re-elected to the White House. So is, is it plausible that the Ukrainians could still fight and still win if America does withdraw military support? If, uh, and I think it's actually unlikely, if, if the US does cease its military support to Ukraine, the immediate effect is that more than 50% of the support that they get would not turn up. That would mean that Ukraine could not continue the war and would have to settle, and that would be a victory for Russia. So for all of those reasons, I don't think this is a particularly likely outcome. But nonetheless, it may be that US has had peak Ukraine and the level of support that they provide um, will plateau and possibly diminish. And the issue therefore comes to Europe, and Europe is perfectly capable of finding the resources to generate the industrial capacity to support the war in Ukraine. And it is clearly in the, the NATO membership's own national security interests that this war turns out well, however well turn, uh, in the end uh, is defined. And this isn't a choice anybody wanted, but it's the choice that we are now confronted with. 
and our political leaders will, will have to make that decision this autumn if they are to equip Ukraine to make them strong enough to prevail in 2024 and more likely in 2025. And we have to remove the pressure of the calendar from this war if we are going to bring a big war to a successful conclusion. It has its own dynamics. Thank you, Richard and Svetlana. Next, Charlie Taylor, His Majesty's Chief Prisons Inspector, writes in the magazine about the state of crisis inside our prisons. This is, of course, following the recent escape of Daniel Khalif from Wandsworth Prison. He joins me now with David Shipley, commentator and a former inmate at Wandsworth. Charlie, you give quite a sobering take on the state of Britain's prisons in the magazine this week, but I'd like to start by talking about last week's escape. Were you surprised at how the prison break captured the public imagination? Well, escapes are incredibly rare, so I think that's one of the reasons why it caught the public imagination, but also because of the nature of the offence this particular prisoner was charged with, and also the fact that he wasn't caught quickly. Normally prisoners uh, leave the prison, get picked up outside if they do escape, or they head for their wives or their girlfriend's house and tend to get uh, re-arrested fairly fast. But in this particular case, he stayed on the run for a few days, and there were lots of quite fanciful speculations going on about him being on a private jet to Iran. Not quite the same as being on a push bike in Northolt, but there you are. Yes, and... and, and uh... David, you covered the escape for the Spectator's website and you say that as, as a former inmate at Wandsworth that a jailbreak from that prison was waiting to happen. Why is that? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone talks about the the filth and the sort of the violence and the drugs in, in prisons like Wandsworth, and Wandsworth particularly, but what you can't understand until you've been there is how just how chaotic it is. Uh, it's such a, a mismanaged, poorly run organization. And I think I said in the article, often when we were there, the prison would lock down for 20, 30, 40 minutes because they'd lost a prisoner. You know, men would, would slip off to another cell, to a different wing, and it just wouldn't get noticed and they wouldn't be found for quite long periods of time because the the whole operation there is is abysmal. It's it's interesting you say that because we when normally when we when we inspect, we go into a wing office and the staff on the wing office will be able to give us a very clear idea of how many prisoners are locked up, who's on legal visits, who's in court, uh, who's gone to education or whatever. And certainly it's always slightly harder to get a clear answer when, when we go to Wandsworth. Yeah, I think it's um, one that really sticks out for me is I've been at Wandsworth a few weeks, I was on A-Wing, and my cellmate left in the morning to go off to court for sentencing. And so during the course of the day, there were a couple of times where they came to check and according to their paperwork, they were still supposed to be two people in the cell. No one had updated that. And, and in each case, the officer relied on on me saying, oh, no, he's gone off to court. They were like, oh, okay, fine, we'll mark that down. You know, let's be frank, I was in prison for for an offence of, of intense and gross dishonesty, you know. So why they were trusting my word struck me as bizarre. And, and, and just, I think that kind of lack of administrative control is a big part of why I wasn't surprised uh, that Daniel Khalif managed to escape. And uh, Charlie, that lack of control or the, the, that, that chaos is, as David just described it, is that does that make Wandsworth an outlier when it comes to the British prison system or is it symbolic or, or, uh, or representative perhaps of a, of a wider crisis in Britain's, Britain's prisons? It's the biggest of its type. It's the biggest reception prison in the country. So it has prisoners going in and out of court 
uh, prisoners coming in uh, for the first time, uh, you know, having been picked up off the streets as well. So it, it's it's something about the busyness of the environment, but also the issues, the ongoing issues that Wandsworth has got with staffing. So when we last inspected in last year, we found that um, 30% of staff were either off sick or were unable to to do their full duties. And of course, if there aren't enough staff around, it, put, it increases the risk that mistakes get made and, and that people end up being able to disappear like this, like happened in this case. Well, yes, you say in your piece that the quality of, of staff is, is critical. Is, is the prison sector struggling to attract the right candidates at the moment? Well, what really strikes you when you go around a prison at the moment is, is the age of staff. They're in, often incredibly young. Some of them is not that long out of school. And they're often having to lock up, deal with, uh, look after prisoners who've been inside for longer than, than they've been alive even. But it's not only that the staff on the front line are inexperienced, very often their managers are inexperienced as well. So, so and I'm sure David will, will confirm this as well, that you actually get prisoners telling staff what they're supposed to do because staff don't always know in, in, in some cases. Yeah, I, I, you wouldn't believe it until you've been there. I think if you told the average person in the country, that's how it works. They, they think you were joking, but you know, prisons are essentially run to a great extent by the prisoners, they they perform a lot of the crucial functions of the prison, and in somewhere like certainly in Wandsworth, often all the staff on a wing would have had less service than the experienced prisoners on the wing, and would rely on those you know trusted prisoners to tell them how the laundry works, when does when do they need to go and get food, you know these sort of basic functions of you know when are people allowed exercise, who's out when, and that I think obviously creates huge opportunities uh, you know for the for the staff to be manipulated and for that trust to be abused and david you uh you were in wandsworth during the covid pandemic when when lockdown measures were imposed on the entire country but there were also additional measures imposed on on prisons i wondered if you could tell our listeners a little bit about what that was like because the last time charlie was on this this podcast uh, he was speaking to our listeners about covid measures that were in place in his majesty's prisons or her Majesty's prisons as they were then, and, and I wondered what was what was the experience of going through the pandemic in prison for you when when you were when you were there? Yeah, it was um, it was awful. Uh, I think in the early stages there was no COVID testing on offer in prisons, and all that would happen if if you were suspected of having COVID was that you would be completely confined to your cell. Uh, so in that initial period, we were being allowed out maybe every three or four days and we could either have a shower or some exercise so if you can imagine two men in a a cell the size of a car parking space and that's where you sleep you eat you go to the loo you clean yourself and you're being you're being kept there for days at a time and because of this perverse incentive where there was no upside to mentioning that you might have covid and lots of downside and then you just be quarantined for two weeks no one said anything so the wings went overnight from being quite noisy places where people were sort of calling out to each other and having chats through their doors to this eerily quiet space where all you could hear were just, you know, men trying to sort of hide their coughs that rattled through the this huge brick and, and metal space. Uh, and it, you know, it went on and on, such that I think a lot of us just went quietly mad, you know, effectively being as close to solitary confinement as you can you can get. Uh, you know, we're just locked away in these cells, nothing to stimulate us. I I spent a lot of time writing a fantasy novel 
because I think that was like some way for me of escaping. But, but I think a lot of other people saw that escape through 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 drugs and alcohol, which uh, did still make their way and were still available. Uh, there was sort of a, a couple of weeks where that supply was interrupted, but certainly by by kind of mid April, late April, drugs were were rife on the wings of Wandsworth again. And just finally, Charlie, I wondered if you could give an update, perhaps, for our listeners about covid measures in prisons because the last time you're on here you were you were making the point that there's still a lot of the restrictions brought in during lockdown are still in place i think it's fair to say there's been some progress and some jails have moved a long way and and, and have done pretty well but overall the picture remains pretty bleak there are too many prisoners locked up in their cells for too long without enough to do we still come across empty classrooms empty workshops empty workspaces with none or just a handful of prisoners and no sort of purposeful activity in place in many jails. And what this means is is that prisons are failing to perform their public protection function, which is to make people less likely to reoffend when they come out. And, and that's my biggest concern about this, is that if the gaps in terms of people's skills, knowledge, understanding, behaviour are not being filled while they're in prison, then they're going to go back to doing the things they were doing that got them there in the first place. Thank you, Charlie and David. And finally... In the art section this week, Rod Little writes about the new Rolling Stones single, supposedly their best in decades. Rod joins us now alongside Will Hodgkinson, chief rock and pop critic at The Times. So Rod, you review the new single Angry in this week's issue. What emotion did it trigger in you? On we, largely. <laughs> the Stones have been going for an awfully long time. And I think for most of the last 40 years, when I've heard a new Stones single, I've been forced to kind of shrug a little bit, despite the fact that, you know, during the 60s and certainly the, the early 70s, uh, they were a, a magnificent troupe of miscreants um, uh, who produced a series of, of wonderful albums, which I really enjoyed. I, I, I think I think what suited the age of 40, probably, uh, once they made certain changes to the band and once they became incredibly comfortable and once they issued drugs... <laughs> or said they issued drugs, the music went downhill a little bit. But, I mean, we, 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 uh, I'm sure many people beg to differ. And, uh, Will, what about you? What did you make of the, the new single, a, a Return to Form? Well, I thought so, but I'd have to agree with Rod in that, I mean, there's been some really bad stones over the last 20 or so years. One of the reasons, I think, is because there came a point Probably in the late 70s, my favorite, the last album I really like is probably Some Girls. And there came a point when it felt like they were trying to keep up with the new technologies. And before, they had just owned what they did. Yeah. I like this album. I think they've got a young producer, and I think that he's kind of brought them to the realization that what they really need to do is make a summation of the stone. In other words, an album that brings in touches of that muscle shoal sound that you hear on Sticky Feet. Yeah, yeah. Touches of Some Girls, which is kind of punk. You know, these little elements, which are, uh, you know, touch of X on the main street, that looseness. So I think the album, I, I mean, I, I really like the album. And I think the reason I like it is because it reminds me of Beggar's Banquet and Let It Bleed and always, they're a soundtrack to my childhood, which is always going to affect, you know, it, it, it's, I felt that they understood that. And I like, I mean, Angry is basic. I mean, it's the same riff as Start Me Up. 
Well, I'm done the cover of the night. It reminded me of both of those. Yeah, exactly. The early 80s, it's got that kind of... I, I mean, the, the thing I thought that was missing, I mean, I, I, I thought it was an uncompelling chorus, and I was kind of looking forward to the chorus. I thought, they're going to have sorted something good out here. It was just a little bit underwhelming. But it was more, I suppose, and this is entirely down to how they work these days, and you cannot expect it of 80-year-olds, that it didn't have that swing and groove that you used to get when they were, you know, smacked out their witless heads in a French <laughs> chateau for 24 hours in a studio, playing the same song over and over again until something suddenly emerged from the mix. The morass. From the morass. And yeah. Glyn Johns was kind of summoned to press record, you know. And, and it, it, because it, theirs, theirs was a... Uh, a very uh, uh, singular way of working, wasn't it? I mean, they, it really was jam after jam until the right thing emerged. The songs weren't set in stone before uh, the band played them. Yeah, that's very true. I think also, you know, that the world you're talking about is very much a Keith Richards world. Anita Pallenberg was lying there looking absolutely incredible. Yes. Um, you know, um, Graham Carsons was turning up to Sports and Smack, you know. And being generally irritated. Irritating Mick, ja Mick Jagger, I think. Now, I think what's happened since then, Mick Jagger's a very sharp guy. Since then, it's kind of, I think Keith is probably, I don't know if it's true, but I feel to an extent that Keith is, is happier to take a bit more of a back seat to read books. You know, he's relatively clean living these days, even giving up smoking. And I see, I think he's realized what he needs to do. But Mick Jagger has still got huge reserves of energy. So I think he's now driving it. And that's very different because Mick Jagger's a different person. Keith's always got got cross when 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 Mick Jagger's comparative cleanliness was announced and you, and would mutter darkly under his breath. It wasn't always like that, and so on. I also I also have a slight problem that you know 1974 75 comes along. I, I actually quite liked It's Only Rock and Roll as an album. I thought it was quite a decent album, and they had a chance then um, to to broaden the stones and to take someone on who, as a guitarist, given that Brian Jones had been lost and that they couldn't quite cope with uh, the rather sulky Mick Taylor, and they go for a sack of meat and potatoes, which is putting it a bit cruelly, I know, but Ronnie Wood, I think, would have been better off in Bad Co. Yeah, it, 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 that's where why there, another reason why I think there isn't quite the swing there you know, if you were going to nick anyone from the faces, I'd have nicked the other Ronnie, uh, who I think was a genuine talent, even though he was crap on the guitar, which is why he was used to be called Plonk, apparently. But I'm not sure that Ronnie Wood was the perfect counterpoint to those, you know, Keith Richards' open chords and so on. He just lacked a bit of the the easy rhythm which they had on Exile and and Sticky Fingers. Yeah, I mean, it's it's to me, it's really hard to beat. I kind of think, I think there's other things at play too. For me, it's really hard to get past, get better than Beggar's Banquet. When was that? 68, 69. Now, I've got a theory, it may be wrong, but I've got a theory that a couple of things happened. One is that they came after Jagger and Richards were arrested. So they were, their backs were against the wall. It was really serious. Well, rich then, actually, because, you know, there's all kinds of strange mismanagement for money, you know, in, in the music industry, it still is, but especially then. So they weren't rich. They were they had money, but not, not nothing to cement themselves. There was a real threat, and they came up with this music, which was 
on the edge, you know, and you feel it. I think the thing that changed it all was Altamont. You'll know what, what it is, Rob, but, you know, this is the concert which a young fan died. Hell's Angels were high to security. I think at that point... Bad employment choice, that, I think. Yes, yeah. Well, as it turned out to be. So I think that I think at that point it all changed in the Stones because at that point they said, okay, well, either we become a rock band, we play stadiums, big security, we have layers and layers and the rest of it, or we, we're going to collapse. That's interesting. No, I mean, I've always felt that that's the point at which it changed. Because so- a lot of people say that, that it changed with, with the death of Brian Jones. Uh, I mean, I was, I was, I have to say, I really, really like Mick Taylor as a guitarist, and I think it brought a new element to the Stones. But, but it's interesting that you put it down as, as, as Altamont. It would make a lot of sense. It, it, was, it was also, in a way, the end of the decade, wasn't it? Yeah. One of the things that comes across in your review, Rod, and, and I think also in this podcast talking about all these sort of past decades and eras and so on, is that is that um, perhaps what makes the Stones such a treasure is that the fact that they're still uh, making interesting new songs now in 2023 at a time where you say in your review, Rod, rock is dying or maybe even dead uh, as a as a genre. I wondered what why where you think it went wrong. For rock, why why has it become this this dying genre? I think, oh, well, it's got a life expectancy. Everything has a life expectancy, and I think rock has probably outlived, well outlived its its life expectancy. I mean, even at the time, you know, when I was twelve, thirteen, fourteen, uh, the reason the punk came along is because we thought that rock had effectively uh, become a parody of itself. That that you know, we were we were listening to Queen doing albums called A Night at the Opera. And Rod Stewart parading his wealth on these on Atlantic Crossing, and there were bolt-on strings and orchestral, uh, and, and there was prog rock, you know, which which seemed to have been a, a blind alley, and and yet interestingly these days, where there is interesting stuff going on in 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 what you might call rock music, it's mass rock and and new prog, which is quite interesting. The stuff I was brought up on was was always, rather than rock-based, was always in country or blues, which is why, you know, I was always a, a fan of bands like the New Riders of the Purple Sage when I was a kid, which is why I never had any friends, I think. <laughs> uh, but I think, but, but I, 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 think yeah, I think it was the mid-70s or late-70s when, when both Van Morrison and David Bowie both said, you know, rock's a dead, dead dodo, basically. There's only so much you can do with it. It's a very, very limited medium. <laughs> you know, uh, you can see that from watching Keith Richards' court sequences. You know, it's it's a very limited medium, and it can only last so long. And the kids have moved on to something else. I'm not entirely sure what that is. I've tried hyperpop, and it's okay. You know, I like H.E. Cook. I think he's good, but... but I think uh, Heartland Rock is now something which is rather despised, given that name, Heartland Rock. It's for dads, isn't it? You know. So I think the genre is dying, which is bad news, I guess, for you, Will, as a reviewer. Thank you, Rod and Will. And that's everything this week. As ever, you can read everything we've talked about in this week's issue of the magazine. I'm Nara Prendergast. And I'm William Moore. And we hope you'll join us again next week. 